How many of you grew up in church? Raise your hand real high. If you grew up in church or you were in church at all, a lot of you, amen? Weren't the, the stories, they stick with you, don't they? I, I could think of stories in the Bible that just were so exciting. One of my favorites is David and Goliath. I mean, how much more exciting can you get than that? A little kid goes out and whoops up on a big old giant with a few stones and a slingshot. Or crossing the Red Sea. That's a tremendous miracle, you know, and I always picture that. Someone put a picture on Facebook the other day, and it said if there had been cell phones in Moses' day, and it showed the people crossing the Red Sea, and they were all taking selfies at the water, you know. (laughs) But uh, exciting things. And, man, you just go through the Bible, and it is filled with exciting stories. But at the very center of it all, the greatest, most exciting story of all is that of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And not only just the birth of our Savior, how that he came and he was born of a virgin and that he lived a sinless life among men, but ultimately the fact that he died on that old rugged cross, which probably was one of the, it had to be the lowest point in human history, don't you suppose? That here is the Son of God, God in the flesh, come down to earth and he's teaching people, he's healing people, he's performing great miracles for people, and the wickedness of man takes that precious Son of God and nails him to an old rugged cross. That had to be probably the lowest point in all of human history. And yet three days later, that same Son of God raised from the dead, amen, victorious over sin and death. And that just makes it exciting. If he had died on that cross and he had been buried and and he was never heard from again, we would maybe just say that was a sad story. But the fact that three days later he rose again says it's a good story. It's a good story. And I want to talk to you about what Christ did for us this morning, what he did for us when he died on that cross. How many of you ever uh, run into empty things around the house that just frustrate you? You know what I'm talking about? Uh, Maybe you've gone and I get these late night munchies. You wouldn't know by looking at me, but sometimes I like to have late night snacks And you ever gone in and, and man, you look and there's your favorite cereal. You know, it's got chocolate in it or marshmallows in it. And I I don't know why they call it cereal. It's more like candy bar crunched up or something. But there's your, and you pour that cereal and you just, your mouth is watering and your tummy's ground and you just know I'm about to have some good stuff. And, And you go to the refrigerator and you grab the milk carton and you find out it's empty. Right? If you've got children, you know what I'm talking about. That has got to be depressing, isn't it? Or for me, peanut butter is the big standby. I'm a peanut butter guy, you know, and peanut butter doesn't require anything. So you're pretty safe to know, you know, and I know some people want milk. I don't, I'll just drink peanut butter. I don't need milk, just peanut butter. But have you ever gone and reached for that peanut butter jar and it was empty? Why, why would somebody put an empty peanut butter jar in the cupboard other than just to torture their father, right? And you reach for it, and maybe there's just enough in there where you, you got the Costco size, and you got to reach down there, and you get the peanut butter all over your knuckles because you're digging and you're desperate. Just an empty peanut butter jar is depressing. Or maybe you've gone to the store. Have you ever done this? I did this one day and found out Kathy had decided she needed some money, and I went to the store and went to pay for something, pulled out my wallet, and it was gone. It was empty. Boy, I don't know if there's anything more depressing than an empty wallet. Maybe an empty bank account or an empty stomach. Amen. We, these are sad things. Empty usually is associated with disappointment, isn't it? Or an empty nest. Some of you have reached that point in life where your children have grown up and they've moved out on their own and you've got an empty nest. 
I've often wondered, man, that has got to be tough. And I, I feel bad for parents when, when all their children fly the coop and leave. And, and yet this last couple of weeks, Kayla had spring break and she took off to Tennessee, Georgia, Oklahoma. And, and so we got a taste of it. And, and it was great. <laughs> I thought I'd be home crying and missing her. But man, I was at the beach one day and I was in the mountains one day and, and I was eating out. And I, I was tempted to go to dinner. It was just awesome. But... So the empty nest thing, I don't quite understand, but some people struggle with it. Or maybe you've just had your heart empty. You ever been there where you've maybe even made that statement, I just feel empty inside. I feel hollow. I feel like something's missing. Or maybe an empty place at the table. An empty place at the table. And I've often listen to stories of folks that have had someone taken in a crime and you, you hear about one of the toughest times they ever experience is when they have days like today, usually a family get together and they go to sit at the table and there's this empty spot. And that's got to be a sad, sad feeling. Or maybe just the empty home that we go home to. But we serve a God who because He lives we can face tomorrow. I can imagine that the disciples felt very empty inside when Jesus died, don't you think? You know, they had given their lives to Him. They had left their jobs to follow Him. They had left their families. He told them, if you're not willing to leave your families and follow Me, you're not worthy to follow Me. And so they had left their families. They had left their homes. They had left everything to follow Jesus. They had been with him through times when the crowds celebrated Jesus' teaching, and so they had experienced some really good times with Jesus, and they had also been with Jesus at times when the crowds wanted to stone Jesus to death. They had been with him through bad times, and aren't those the people that we grow closest to, the ones that we experience life's ups and life's downs with? And so when Jesus was crucified, when he was nailed to that cross, when he drew his final breath after he had said, it is finished, the disciples probably stood there for for maybe hours and just looked on Jesus. And, And can you imagine the empty feeling that day as they went home without Jesus? They left him. He was to be prepared and taken to the tomb. And, and just that feeling of, of loss. Mary, Jesus' mother, and the other Mary, I imagine the emotions that they felt was just emptiness and hollowness. And some of you probably know that feeling because you've experienced that when you've lost someone. But aren't you glad that Jesus didn't leave us that long with an empty feeling? That as empty as they felt that day when Jesus was crucified, they would just have to wait three days and Jesus would rise again and he would make himself known to them. And when he did that, he set the example and he sent notice to us that even though we lose people in this life, that one day they will rise again just like Jesus rose from the dead. One day we'll be reunited with our loved ones who have gone before us. One day we'll go into heaven and be with those that have left us because of what Jesus did at Calvary. That's the hope of the cross. In Mark chapter 16, it says, When when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a 
white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. In a few translations, they use the term, the tomb is empty. And although many things in this life, when they are empty, bring disappointment and sorrow to us, in this instance, empty is a good thing. That when they found that empty tomb, it made all the difference in the world. We just sang the song written by Bill Gaither that said, God sent his son, they called him Jesus. He came to love, heal, and forgive. He lived and died to buy my pardon. And then he says, an empty grave is there to prove my Savior lives. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. And life is worth the living just because he lives. The empty tomb, in reality, means a full life for you and I, doesn't it? I read a story years ago, and it has always stuck with me around Easter time. It was published in Leadership Magazine, and the story was about a little boy named Philip who had Down syndrome, and he attended a Sunday school class in a local church. It was third grade class combined with boys and girls, all about eight years old, seven or eight years old, and they of course, had a hard time adjusting, as children do, and, and accepting, and there was always these feelings of difference, that he's different than us, he's not the same as us, and so they struggled, but he had a, a loving Sunday school teacher that understood that, and she did her best to integrate him into the class and, and make the other students accept him and feel comfortable with him. One particular Sunday, the story read that after Easter, Easter the teacher brought in the legs pantyhose eggs. Do you remember those? Man, when I was a little boy, I, I just loved those. I don't even know if they even sell them anymore. But remember, they had the big eggs. You know, the kids are going to hunt these little plastic ones. Those were the real deal eggs. I mean, huge. And depending on how big your mama was, it, no, that had nothing to do with it. But those eggs, and my mom's here, so I'm going to be in trouble. Be quiet. But my brother and I, we used to fight over them. Things were cool, you know. And so the teacher brought in some of those legs, pantyhose eggs, empty, of course. And, and she passed them out to the kids. And she gave them this assignment for Easter. And she said, I want you to go out into the, into the church grounds and the flower beds and everywhere you can, the lawns. And I want you to put something in there that reminds you of life. Because... Easter, we talked about life, and, and spring is life and new things. And so the kids all went out, and they gathered things, and they stuffed them in. And as they brought them back into the class, one by one, they began to open them. And one brought in a, a flower that they had picked off one of the bushes, and another brought in a, a, a piece of grass. And they just had all sorts of things that they brought in. And one of the eggs that the teacher took, and she opened the egg, and it was just empty. And the kids, of course, began to talk like they will. And, and they began to say, well, that's not fair. Someone didn't do what they were supposed to do. And, and whose egg is it? And, of course, it happened to be little Philip's egg. And that made things even worse because they said, you don't ever do anything right. You, you just mess it up all the time. And, and you didn't do what the teacher said. And Philip spoke up and he says, I did do it. He says, I did do it. It's empty like the tomb is empty. And that's about life. And that story has just always stuck with me. And they said that the kids just kind of fell silent when they heard that. There's not much you can say to that. He pretty much nailed the sermon right there. The teacher probably could have walked into church, told the story, and given an altar call that day, and the preacher wouldn't even have had to work. 
the kids fell silent, but the teacher said in the article that from that point on, the kids just accepted Philip. He had some other physical disabilities that would make it so that his life would be shortened, and they said that within a year, he actually, due to complications, had passed away. And as they all attended the funeral there at the church, people would come and they'd drop flowers and they'd leave little Bibles there at the pulpit because he was just a loved kid. These types of children just have a way of getting in our heart. But they said one of the most touching things of all was when the third grade Sunday school class came marching down the aisle. And one by one, each dropped a legs pantyhose egg into the casket. He had made a connection because of a message he shared about life. The empty tomb says that life is worth living. The empty tomb means that there's life for you and I. That there's something beyond what what we experience here. That there's more to this than meets the eye. I want to speak to this morning from Colossians 2, 13 through 15, and and just give you three things that Jesus, that God did for us through Jesus Christ. Here's what the text reads. It says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Three things that that God did for us in Christ Jesus through Calvary, through the cross, and through the resurrection. And the first thing is this, is that God made us alive, he says. The Bible tells us very clearly in Ephesians, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even, it says, when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you're saved. We don't often talk about that. We don't even think about that. For us, the concept of of being dead doesn't make sense because we're moving, we're breathing, we're here. And so how could we be dead? But spiritually, when we do not have Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, when we are still living to ourselves, when we are still in our sins and they've not been taken care of, we are as good as dead spiritually, aren't we? And what he's telling us is that when Jesus came and died on that old rugged cross, he allowed us to be made alive in Christ. That our sins are cast away and that we become alive to God. And that is a great and wonderful thing, isn't it? In fact, Ephesians says it is the way that God showed his wonderful love for us. And this morning, if you're here and you do not know Christ as your Savior, obviously you're alive and you're breathing and you're moving and and you'll get in the car and go home and you'll have a great afternoon. But if you do not know Christ as your Savior, the Bible says we are spiritually dead. More than anything, God wants to make you alive. That's what Easter is about. That's what the resurrection is about. Because Jesus Christ died and He was buried and He was made alive once again. And that's what He wants to do in our lives is to make us alive. The second thing that the passage here says that it does is he talks an awful lot about debt there, doesn't he? Debt, and he talks about this record that was held against us and that Christ took that and he nailed it to the cross. And I think that's a very fitting illustration that God uses here in this passage because most of us as Americans understand debt, don't we? I ran across these statistics and probably we don't need to share this depressing type of news but we probably relate to it. According to the Federal Reserve and their statistics, that the U.S. credit card debt in America 
$793.1 billion what Americans owe on credit cards. Let's bring it down to reality. The average credit card debt per household, think about this, $15,799. I know some of you say, well, that's not that bad. I'll just pay it off next month, next check. For most of us, it's like, if I took all my checks for the next 10 years, I don't even know if I could do it then. That's a lot of money, isn't it? We are a society that lives in debt. The average household debt in America is $54,000. That's when you take your car payments and your credit cards and your doctor's bills and all the, and you lump them together, $54,000. Percent of consumers that carry an unpaid balance in the last 12 months is 56% of us. The percent who said their debt has gotten higher in the past 12 months, 26%. Those of us that say, well, mine hasn't gotten higher, that's because we've limited out. The average balance per open credit card is $1,157. The percent of disposable income that went to service credit card debt, 13.9%. Most of us, if we just get rid of our credit cards, we'd get a 14% raise. Isn't that amazing? The percent of families whose debt exceeds 40% of their income is 14.7%. The average credit card debt carried by undergraduate college students is $3,173 in credit cards. Undergraduate college students. If you've got high schoolers or kids in junior college right now, you know that they're being sent credit card offers already. My daughter doesn't even have a job and she gets credit card offers. Kathy and I get the mail, we intercept it, rip them up, throw them away. She never even knows they got there. Percent of credit card holders whose balance is less than 1,000 is 40%, but those who's over 10,000 is 15%. The average combined credit card limit per customer is $19,000. The average debt of a college graduate is $20,000. Percent of 18 to 24-year-olds who have debt hardships is 20%. The percent of those who believe they have the same or less debt than the average is 90%. We're drowning in debt, and 90% of us say, well, I'm probably just average with everyone else. The percent of college students who have credit cards is 76%. You say, why are we talking about debt? And why are we talking about all this stuff? This is Easter. We're supposed to be talking about God. Because that's what the Scripture says. It says that when Christ came, God used him to do away with our debt. Not our financial debt, but every one of us has sin debt. And so we might have listened to all those statistics and we might have just been patting ourselves on the back saying, not me, I don't have any credit cards, I don't have any car, I'm, do- I'm good. But the Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That every one of us are sinners. We've all sinned and we all continue to sin. And the question is, how are we going to deal with that? Because the wages of sin, it says, is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And what he's telling us in our terms that we understand as Americans is that because of our sin, we all owe this enormous debt, the sin debt. And how are we going to pay that back? And here's the truth, is we will never pay it back. You ever see that little chart they show of the national debt? 
Man, it is a scary thing. It's this big board with all these numbers, and there's this one number that's like at $17 trillion right now, and it's just rolling, and you think, man, slow it down, slow it down, and there's no slowing it down. And and then you realize that we're paying all this interest, and that's being added to the debt, and you look at America's debt, and you say, it is hopeless, we'll never pay this back. Have you ever been there in your own personal finances where you had this enormous debt and you said, there's no way I could work a lifetime and not pay this back? That has got to be one of the worst feelings in all the world, being buried in debt. If you've been there, you know the, the strain that it puts on your marriage and your relationship. You know the strain that it puts on you as an individual that it just wears you out knowing that, man, I'm working for the man. Amen. And I'll... Into the week, I'll turn it all over to the creditors. The Bible speaks strongly about that. But have you ever thought about our sin debt? How could we pay it back? What could we do? Is there enough money that we could offer up to God to say, God, I know I've sinned. God, I know I've messed up. God, I, I reached for my I didn't even bring a wallet today. I reached for my wallet, God, and I, I don't have anything to give you. We're not going to be able to lay out the American Express card, the MasterCard, the Visa, and say, God, just charge them as much as you can get on them. Would that take care of it? We're not going to be able to say, God, can I work it off? You ever gone to a restaurant and didn't have your money and ended up washing dishes? Thankfully, I'm married. I haven't had to do it. I had Kathy do it once. No, I didn't. (laughs) But there's no way we'll ever pay the sin debt off. The good news is that when Jesus Christ came, He died for us and He rose again. He paid our sin debt. He didn't die for His sins. He died for our sins. He was placed there so that He could remove those sins from us. Another song said, Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. And the contemporary version goes on to say, Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. Jesus paid our debt. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, Jesus described a a money lender, a loan officer, a loan shark, if you will, in this case, and two debtors. It says a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? I thought very seriously this morning about it would be so cool to illustrate this idea of how good it feels to have the debt paid by offering to pay off someone in the church's debt. And I thought, well, who am I going to find that doesn't owe but maybe 50 bucks, you know? But this lender finds these two men, and they don't have the resources, and he forgives them both their debt. That had to be a good day in their lives, amen? Can you imagine today if, if somehow, some way, someone walks into this room and says, listen, there's a couple of you, you in here that are just buried in debt. And today, I'm going to pay it off for you. Man, you'd have thought we'd have slipped into the Pentecostal church this morning, amen? I guarantee there'd be shouting and there'd be tears and there'd be jumping and hooting and hollering and, and Baptists would have got the Spirit today. He says, this lender forgave them. And he says, Jesus says, now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. He said to him, you have rightly judged. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? 
I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from this time, from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And you listen to that verse and you think, well then, there are some people that are going to be able to love God more because God has forgiven them of more. And that's one way I suppose to look at that. But this morning, I want you just to think about maybe this concept, is that when we minimize our sin debt, we limit our ability to love God like we ought to. By that, I mean sometimes we kind of play down our own sin. We say things like that, well, I'm a sinner, but I'm not that bad. You know, I haven't killed anybody, and I don't run drugs or guns on the side, and I'm not that bad. Sin is sin. Amen? And we're all sinners. And sin is deadly. Sin has this debt attached to it that we could never pay off. And it doesn't matter if that sin is a lie or if that sin is adultery. That sin is something we can never pay for on our own. And so this morning I urge you, I know that you are all good people. You're here today and and none of you are people that I would look at and say, well, I'm not sure I want to sit by that one. I'm a little nervous about sitting there. I'd sit by any one of you. You're good people. The problem is, all people are sinners, whether they're good or bad. And no matter how good you are, if that sin debt doesn't get paid, we're in trouble. But Jesus came to Calvary. He died for us. He rose from the dead so that He could pay our sin debt. Is that good news or what? That's great news. Not only that, the text goes on and he tells us that he triumphed over our accusers. That that day, he put the foe to open shame, it says. And those were the the ones that were accusing them of not being good enough. And in the text here, he's really talking about these non-Jewish Christians. These people who had been uncircumcised. And so outwardly, they didn't appear as spiritually as their Jewish counterparts. And the religious leaders of the day really looked down on them for that. And it might be similar to maybe the way we look down on folks sometimes, unfortunately. And that they don't look like a Christian. They don't cut their hair like a Christian. They don't wear the right color of suit. or You know know what I'm talking about. Jesus said that day, He just put an end to all of that. Because He said no longer the circumcision of the flesh doesn't matter. What matters is that I've died for these folks. And that their salvation is in me. It's not in what they've done. It's not in anything outward in their lives. It's in me. It's in what I've done at the cross. And so he put the accusers to silence. 1 Peter 3 and 22 says, Who has gone into heaven, he's speaking about Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. That when Christ died and He rose again and He ascended into heaven, He took a place of superiority over all authorities. And it doesn't matter today what anyone thinks of you. What matters is what Christ thinks of you. 
It doesn't matter if this preacher accepts you, this church accepts you. What matters is that the Son of God at the right hand of the Father has said, my blood has paid your sin debt and you are now right with the Father. Revelation 12, 10 and 11 describes this accusers. He says, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the kingdom, now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come. And then he says this, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they have loved not their lives even unto death. And he describes their Satan as being the accuser of the brothers. Very similar to what they were experiencing with the religious leaders, it takes place in our life, but Satan goes around accusing us. But he tells us that Christ defeated him at Calvary. He put him to an open shame. So this morning, I want to really challenge you to to think about this passage, and there's two things that stand out. One, he talks about you and I, and then he talks about God. With you and I, he makes it very clear that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We have to know that. That no matter how we dress ourselves up, and no matter how good we look on Easter Sunday, we're still sinners. We still need a Savior. We are loaded down, he says, with this enormous sin debt that we could never pay on our own. We're in trouble without Christ. But then more importantly, he talks about God and what God has done for us through Jesus. He's made us alive. He's forgiven us all our sins and trespasses. He has canceled the record of debt. In fact, he uses the phrase, he has nailed it to the cross. That's why he went there. He has triumphed over our accusers. Do you know Christ as your Savior today? Are you here today and and maybe you come in here and you're carrying this sin debt. You've lived your life and you continue to live it and year after year after year after year, you have just carried on and never dealt with your sins. And and that sin debt in your life maybe is just like that one of the nation that's at 17 trillion and the number just keeps rolling and maybe that's you. And boy, it just accumulates through time, doesn't it? Maybe today you're here and it's just rolling. The problem we have is that one day it's going to have to be paid. It's going to have, somebody's going to have to pay. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Somebody's going to have to pay. The wages is death. The gift of God is eternal life through Christ our Lord. Why not give your life to Christ today? If someone were to walk in here and roll out a case of money and said, who, who needs their debt paid? Start handing out wads of money. We'd all be up, wouldn't we? If they rolled the, the, the vault to the front altar and we said, just come on down to the altar. You can have your debt paid. I guarantee it would be the biggest altar call we've ever experienced. Christ has come and He said, come to Me. I'll pay your sin debt. Why in the world would we choose to pay it on our own? Let's stand.